Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, and Happy New Year. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, New Year, new series of shows for 2017. We're going to be talking about solutions to problems that we see with toddlers and preschoolers with language delays during play. So we'll take out, we'll isolate those situations that if you're a therapist, you see from child to child to child <laughs> and give you some real-life concrete strategies, and not just one or two, several for, for each of the problems that we'll be talking about, um, so that you're going to know how to handle these problems and so that you'll have things that become your go-to little list of what you should try when something is going awry <laughs> in a therapy session with one of your little clients. Now, if you are a parent, sometimes as a parent we just – start to think that so many of the things that our child will do are completely unique to him. And I am so not diminishing the individuality of any child. But (laughs) when you work with kids year after year after year, and especially when you work with kids with language delays, it's kind of easy to fall into that too because you think, you know, you, you really take that sentence every child is different and you so over apply it that you miss the patterns and that you miss uh, seeing that hey this kid has has this particular issue with a toy or with play or or during interaction with me and you think that you have to come up with so many new ideas that you've never even tried before when really if you think back you had a kid like this six months ago now he may have had a little little difference here and there, but you need to start as a therapist really, really developing an inventory of things to do when you see a particular problem in a child and so that you're not reinventing the wheel every time that you come up with a problem, that you are pretty confident when you see a kid who's mailing toys that you think, oh, well, let me just try these three or four things. When you see a kid who's throwing toys that you think, hey, this is what's worked before or this is what I listen to on that podcast that will help me. And so you develop those things. And again, as a parent, let me go back to that point. Sometimes we think that everything our kid does is really, really, really unique and individual. And for a lot of things, that really is. But when it comes to problem solving, we need to look at what's worked for other kids. And again, you do not have to reinvent the wheel. You do not have to come up with something that's nobody's ever thought of before you. So that's what this whole series is about, taking really familiar and common situations, a.k.a. problems, <laughs> that we see that that come up over and over and over again with toddlers and preschoolers with language delays. So while we're playing with them and while we're – and by playing with them, as a therapist, what I mean is when you're trying to work with them. And we all know that speech therapy for – Young children really should be developmentally appropriate. And what's developmentally appropriate for a two-year-old, a one-year-old, a three-year-old? It's play. So these are the kinds of things that we are looking at and that we see, again, as we're working with kids and as we're playing with them. And they're the same kinds of problems that parents experience too. But sometimes parents don't have that instinct to know hey, there's some things that I can do on my end that will make this easier for this child. It will make it better, and he'll want to participate, and I can solve this issue. And play continues, and learning continues, and language development continues. So that's what we're talking about during this series. Now, these ideas are excerpts from my book, Teach Me to Play With You, and the entire last chapter is devoted to these kinds of issues, so solving problems during play. And I wanted to mention that. Um, so that if you feel like, oh, I'm listening to the show and these are great ideas and maybe you're driving or exercising and you think, how am I going to remember this? I can't stop and write this down. Or, you know, or you'll, people have told me before they try to pause it or they'll say, man, you talked way too fast. I had to listen to that three times <laughs> before I could get all that information down. Just listen to the podcast and then if you need a written Uh, reference for this or if you need some reminders or hey if you're a therapist and you need a tool 
to be able to share these solutions with parents. Get yourself a copy of that book. Now remember, just for podcast listeners, there's a special coupon code that you can use to save $10 off any Teach Me to Talk product. This coupon will never expire. I'm going to let it run in into me as long as the podcast runs. And just enter podcast in the coupon code box there as you're in checkout and you'll save $10, especially off this book, because I think you're going to hear some ideas that you'll want to have the written copy so that you can go back and refer to it later. All right, so sometimes when we're playing with kids and working with children with language delays, despite our very, very, very best efforts, these behaviors seem to arise or these problems or you feel like this kid is just being a little stinker and you think, hey, he is deciding right now that he's not going to play with me. He's making a real conscious effort to not do what I want him to do. Now, some t- and, and we think about that as a behavior problem, and there's a whole branch of uh, a whole discipline related to that. But what I really want us to try to do is kind of take a step back from that and not look at behavior modification or, gosh, certainly not look at punishment or anything like that. We're going to take a look back or take a step back and look at this from a sensory processing difference perspective. And if you've not done that before, if you are a parent and this is new information for you, let's just take a second to talk about what sensory processing differences are so that we're all on the same page. And if you're a therapist and you think, oh, I already know this, yeah, you do. I hope you do. But you have to know how to explain it to parents so that it makes sense. Because when we start using all of our professional jargon and we try to use, you know, lots of multisyllabic words to prove how smart we are, Sometimes we lose what we're really trying to say. And then the explanation becomes so convoluted that it's just so difficult for parents to follow. And frankly, sometimes it's difficult for professionals to follow too. You'll talk to another speech pathologist who doesn't have your background in sensory processing or your background in early intervention. And then she has no idea what you're talking about because you're not using real language, language or everyday words that everybody else uses when they talk about how a kid looks when these kinds of problems are happening. So even if you feel like, hmm, I know this, hmm, fast forward, let me listen to another show, <laughs> you may do yourself some good with trying to hone your own explanation that you provide to parents so that they really understand what you're trying to say. And more importantly, they begin to understand their child. Some of those quirky or weird things their kid might do become a little more uh, comprehensible to them. They understand it a little bit better. They think, gosh, this makes a little more sense. It's still kind of, I wish he wouldn't do it. I wish that we could figure out a way to make him just as a parent, you know, might say play right (laughs) or play with me without all this other stuff coming in. But at the same time, they appreciate or they have a new level of even compassion for their child because they get why they're doing what they're doing. And again, we're not going to just talk about these problems and say, well, that's what we see in kids with language delays or kids with sensory issues or kids with autism or or whatever. You don't want to leave it there. You don't want to leave an issue just like, well, that's what we can expect with Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or whatever diagnosis your child has. But you look for a way to solve that problem or, or provide an, a, a, so, a, an additional level of support so that that issue is not as detrimental to your experience when you're playing, meaning that you can keep going. You don't have to just let everything fall apart. You don't have to move on. And, again, that's what I was saying earlier. Sometimes parents don't really think about that. You know, therapists, gosh, we'll just beat a dead horse, won't we? (laughs) We'll just do the same thing over and over and over, hoping to goodness, you know, the 17th time we try it, it's going to work. But some, and, and a lot of times it does, thank goodness, but sometimes parents don't have that persistence that we've learned over years and years of working with kids is, gosh, we just got to keep doing it. We've just got to try again. We've got to tweak it a little bit and then try again. A lot of times parents feel real defeated and they want to give up and they want to move on because they think, hey, this doesn't work. And so we'll have to, or, or they'll stop playing altogether or they'll say, I try to work with him at home, but he just, he just won't do it with me. He'll throw a toy, and then I get mad, and I don't want him breaking stuff, so we stop, or he'll have a fit, and I just can't work with him when he's like that, so I'm just, you know, you fix him, which is what a lot of parents kind of 
understandably, have kind of gotten to the point that they feel like doing because they don't know how to address these kinds of things. And so, again, that's the purpose of this show. Let's talk about sensory processing differences. Children who have difficulty interacting with others, meaning the social component is not there, meaning that they are pretty isolated or they seem to avoid other people or they kind of want to do their own thing, those are the children that we're really, really talking about when we are going to be discussing these kinds of problems. Now, certainly we can see oh, a kid who's even typically developing sometimes exhibit one of these behaviors. And so don't look at everything here and pathologize it, meaning that, you know, just because you see one of these little things, you kind of wring your hands and think, oh, this kid is worse than I thought or whatever. Because we can certainly see these kinds of things in typically developing toddlers and preschoolers as well. But it's the consistency of the problem <laughs> that makes their development atypical, meaning that it's just harder and harder to deal with it or it happens all the time. So that's what we're going to be talking about with these strategies. It's particularly directed to these kinds of kids. And again, back to my explanation of sensory processing differences, we have to know how to explain these things to parents. So this is, this is what I say. Sensory issues are differences in how kids experience the world. So how do we experience the world? We use our senses. So how we see, how we hear, how we feel things, how we taste things, how, we, uh, how our bodies feel when we're doing something. So that movement component. And this is what happens in a kid with sensory processing differences. Their little bodies and brains literally do not sense or filter or process that same incoming information that, that typically developing kids get, it's it, it somewhere it's, it's become different. It's, it, they're wired differently is what I say to parents, and parents seem to really appreciate that explanation. So sometimes those incoming sensations, things they see, things, that, things they hear, things they taste, things they feel, sometimes they are so much more intense than what we might feel and so we'll hear we'll hear a siren and we're thinking oh there goes the fire truck and a kid with an auditory sensitivity or a hearing difference and again we're not talking about the specific uh, physiological or, or the, the process of hearing I'm not saying that his hearing is so sensitive per se I'm just saying he he reacts differently that fire truck siren to him is so much more, again, I like to use the word intense, than it is to you. So he's freaking out. He's maybe crying or covering his eyes or trying to run away. I mean, he really feels assaulted when he hears that. And so sometimes parents really don't get that the reason that he's doing that, they think he's just freaking out or they think he's just being bad. And it's not that. It's not that he's you know, so he certainly probably doesn't understand that's a siren. It's going to go away in just a second. The truck will drive down the street. We won't hear it as loudly. Everything will be fine. He hasn't had enough life experience to confirm that for him. So he reacts in that affected way, and then we're left thinking, hey, you know what's going on? Again, it's that intensity of the reaction that we have to talk to parents about, and we have to say, you know, again, that's we need to use calming strategies. We need to talk them through it, other things. But my, my point here is just to say he processes that sound differently than you or I do. Same thing with, with uh, other kinds of examples. For instance, you may not see the validity or why a kid would sit and open and close a door, a cabinet door, over and over and over again. You might not understand why a kid watches a ceiling fan spin for what seems like you know, 15, 20 minutes at a time, but that that experience is so visually exciting or maybe even visually calming for your child that that's what his little body and brain crave. They like it. They they That's an intense, they have an intense response to that, but again, with their attention that you don't understand because your system isn't set up like their little systems. Same thing can be true of a kid who seems kind of, wild for lack of a better word who's super super active you might not see what he gets out of jumping off the back of the couch you know 27 times in a row and guess what that same activity might seem dangerous to another child who's not quite sure of where their body is in space so the intensity is different there and let me say something about intensity too 
not, it might go the other way. Uh, and that's what it would be with this kid who's jumping off the couch over and over and over again. You know, he's, well, okay, let's go with this example. He's craving that movement over and over. He likes that. That's what he needs for his little body to feel good. He might enjoy the woohoo part of that, just the excitement, the adrenaline rush. You know, he might be a, a bungee jumper when he's older or like to, uh, you know, parachute out of planes, whatever. He, he might be that kind of person who likes that intense physical high that he gets from that. Some kids are the opposite, which is where I was going with this. They don't like that sensation at all. They will do anything they can to avoid their body being moved. And again, that that's still a difference in intensity. It's not kind of in the middle or typical. And so we have to really look at kids and and analyze what's going on with here how, with this kid. How does this why is he doing this? How does how does what does this really mean? Now, an OT, a really skilled occupational therapist can probably tease these things out with a parent better than a speech pathologist can, but sometimes we SLPs who've worked forever <laughs> have a pretty good knowledge and a pretty good working everyday understanding uh, perspective. Under, uh, just We get it because we've worked with so many kids who are like this. So help a parent and why a kid is behaving that way or point out what it is. And again, if you fill in over your head as an SLP or a developmental therapist or an early educator, whatever you are, get an OT. If you're a parent who who you're recognizing some of these things, as I'm talking about it for your for your kid, you might have a really, really picky eater, meaning that he only eats three kinds of food and they're all white. Or your child just will overstuff her mouth to the point that she vomits. You know, you've got some things going on here with feeding that you think, boy, this does not sound like other parents, what they say about their kids, or this kid is not like my other kids, or this kid is not like the books. <laughs> I, I'm reading, you know, what to expect my baby's first, you know, during the toddler years, and he doesn't fit these categories. So get someone else to help you understand the sensory processing differences that your child might be experiencing. And just hearing the explanation for some of these things is such a point of relief for a lot of parents because, again, they feel like they're alone. They feel like this has never, ever, ever been documented in a child before. And so there's relief when they find out, hey, other kids have done this, and this is what we've done that works. And, you know, I have seven or eight ideas for us to try, and we're going to move through these and see what works for your child. And so, again, as a speech pathologist you and other kind of early interventionists, you can really help parents begin to understand their child's idiosyncratic or kind of out there behaviors, how they feel about it, and get them not to look at it again from a behavior standpoint, meaning that the kid is just trying to make your life terrible you can help them see that, gosh, this really probably has another uh, base for this, a neurological reason that he's doing this and his little body is, and his little brain are telling him something different than what we would expect that incoming message to be. And so you can help them and walk through that process. But get an OT if you need somebody. And if you're a speech pathologist and you're kind of stumped by a kid, don't go it alone. Try to bring somebody else in. If you have that luxury of, of getting consults and using your other resources and other disciplines, other other people that are in the field that aren't in speech so that they can help you decipher what's going on with the kid and provide some treatment for that child and help for those parents. All right, so let's talk about how this will be set up. We'll talk about the problem, so what we're seeing with the child. We'll talk about any kind of other similar situations so that we're kind of grouping these little problems together. I want to give you some explanations for why a child might be behaving that way. And again, it's not the same reason for every child. And even though a kid might have the same diagnosis as another child, even though a kid you might be suspecting that he has red flags for autism, but then you know another kid down the street who has an autism diagnosis, but he has, you know, he doesn't do the same thing that your child is doing. So, or, or maybe he does the same thing. He has the same kinds of, uh, as we're calling them, problems or issues or challenge challenges that we'll be discussing. But actually, it's for a different reason than maybe your child is exhibiting that same kind of behavior. 
or same kind of, again, problems. So we'll talk about some possibilities, and you'll just have to think if you're a parent, does this make sense for my child? Does this seem to fall in line with what I know about him and what I'm seeing? And if you're a therapist, you certainly know that a kid, you know, one kid might bite to avoid doing an activity. One kid might bite as his way of being overstimulated. One kid, you know, and again, they're just different reasons that children um, will, will have some of the things that we're going to talk about. So we'll talk about some possible explanations to kind of give you a map so that you think, well, this might be why it's happening and what's, what it stems from. And that's important because the solution for every kid is not going to be the same. A lot of times it is really going to go back to why is he using this behavior? Why is, why is he doing this? And so you'll you'll be able to get some solutions based on thinking, well, he does this because, or she does, this is why she does this, and that will help us determine our solution as well. And remember, if one thing doesn't work after a few days or tries, move on, try something else. As I always like to say, you know, this is why we get paid to do this job with therapy. You have to think about it, and you have to be a critical um you have to use your strategies critically and be a strategic thinker and kind of come up with, well, this didn't work, let's try this, or, or, or I, I like this solution a little bit and it seems like it might work, but maybe if we tweak this little piece, it'll be better. So just try something else if something doesn't work, but don't try it too soon. Don't move on after one little time or two or one little session with a child because you think something doesn't work. Sometimes it takes some time for this to take hold, but if you've done something Try a solution for, say, if you're a therapist, oh, gosh, four or five sessions in a row and it's not working, stop and do something else. Or if you're a mom or dad and you think, oh, I've been doing this for, you know, a week now and this doesn't seem to be working. Or if a child's behavior actually escalates, sometimes the behavior will escalate a little bit in the beginning as you begin to treat it, as you begin to provide some intervention for it, but then it should recede. And if it doesn't, then you'll know, gosh, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm trying the wrong thing here. Let me try something else and see if it works a little bit better. But keep trying, keep exploring, and keep playing, even when it doesn't seem to be uh, going as well as you would want to, because eventually, I promise, all that hard work and energy it requires to problem solve like this and you know, apply all this critical thinking, it will pay off. One day you're going to see your efforts, again, really, really be rewarded. So there are about 20 different problems that we could discuss. I'm not sure if we'll discuss all of them in this series, but we'll, we'll certainly tackle most of them. And we'll start with something that we see a lot of the time with toddlers that parents complain about a lot. And sometimes therapists who are new to early intervention have sort of forgotten that this is what working with toddlers looks like. But let's just talk about this first problem, which is kids who mouth every single thing. So instead of playing with a toy, all they seem to want to do is put the toy in their little mouth. Now, why would a kid do that? What are these possible explanations? Well, a kid could be underreactive, or like we said before, it just takes a whole lot of incoming information or a whole lot of input for a kid to recognize and realize and process that 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 whatever that input happens to be, he just needs a lot more of it before his little brain and body recognize that it's there. So those are the kids, again, if we're talking about placing toys in their mouths, these are kids that might just uh, want to get everything in there and really crave that input because they're underreactive. Unless they do it a lot, they really don't recognize it. They really don't process it. It could be that your kid just really likes how things feel in his mouth. This is really an, an, a big, big, big point for early interventionists to know and to stress to parents as well is that it's really developmentally appropriate until a kid is near the age of 24 months or that second birthday for them to explore toys in that way. So they're kind of still, even though they're older, you know, well, let's think about it like this. Babies, infants use their mouths to explore their toys, their hands, anything that you've just randomly left as they're down there on the floor, they're going to find it and try to eat it. 
because that's one of the ways that they can explore objects and, and other kinds of uh, information. They may not even be able to get it in their mouths, but boy, are they going to get their mouths on the object. That's why kids might chew the railings of their cribs or when you'll see them when they first start to try to walk, they're pulling up on the side of the table and you think, oh my goodness, they're using that for stability. He's going to take a step. No, you watch him, and what his motivation really was is he wanted to get his mouth on the edge of that table. So, again, that's developmentally appropriate for an infant, but when we're working with a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old who still mouths a lot of things, you have to think about them uh, where they are developmentally and not chronologically. So just because he's three, he may still be functioning like he's 12 months or 18 months. And so when you think about that, it's still kind of okay for him to mouth things as a way to process that that incoming information. So a lot of kids that we're going to see on our caseloads that are still mouthing at three, it's because developmentally they're not really three. And so you have to explain that to parents in a way, again, that's not, um, well, let's just say it like this, in a way that won't break their hearts because they hear it over and over and over again. Your child is delayed. Your child is special. Your child has special needs. He has this problem. Da, 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 da. And they start to so feel overwhelmed and kind of beat up because someone's always pointing out what's wrong. But you have to do it in a way where you're reminding them, look, you know, mouthing objects or putting toys in his mouth is something that may happen for a while yet because maturation-wise and developmentally, he's just not there yet. So we have to keep working toward helping him improve and helping him make progress so that eventually that's not going to be a major driving force anymore. He He's moved beyond that. And so you have to help parents see that. And I like to say, you know, remember now babies mouth things and new toddler, you know, young toddlers mouth things. And that's kind of where he still is, that developmental phase. So we may have to put up with that just a little bit longer. And sometimes parents will be okay with that. Sometimes parents really get upset with that and say, you know, no, we've got to really manage this in a different way or I don't care about that. I just want him to stop trying to eat everything. And so then you'll kind of move on to some of these other strategies that we'll talk about now. One thing that I like to do in that situation, if I think that a child really, really, really has that internal drive that, my goodness, you know, he really needs that oral input is that we'll make sure that we routinely provide things that are safe and acceptable for a child like that to mouth or chew on. So things like chewy tubes. And if you're a parent, you could, I think you probably could Google chewy tube. That's what we all call them. But they're little plastic, um, maybe plastic's the wrong word. Maybe it's more like silicone, but a, a, a safe kind of teething toy. Still look for teething toys and go ahead and buy teething toys. And a lot of times parents will say, well, I thought he had outgrown that. That really looks babyish. I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I'm going to bring those things back out again. And I say, wouldn't you rather him do this with something that you know is safe than him trying to chew his clothes all the time or chew the rug or whatever that child happens to be doing, and you say, you know, wouldn't you need some control in this, and you need you need to be looking at what your options are here and your choices are. And so, I think a teething toy would be a much safer and more acceptable way for him to get that feedback that he's going to get anyway, rather than him having to choose that. Let's go ahead and provide things that we know that are going to be better for him to chew on. I will attach teething toys to kids' uh, shirts with pacifier clips. That works pretty well. Sometimes we'll really work on teaching a kid how to get those safer options in his or her little mouth. So, again, that they're not, you know, trying to just pick up any little thing that they see to chew on. This happens a lot in preschool classrooms where kids who have that urge and that need to mouth excessively, they'll try to eat crayons or, you know, a pencil or something, again, that's not developmentally appropriate. So it's so much better to go ahead and provide that additional option and just talk parents through that. And if you're a parent and you're in that situation, um, talk to your therapist about that and see what some other options are. There's a line of uh, little necklaces called jewelry. So it's like the word jewelry with a CH at the beginning of that word. I've had kids who've had some pretty good luck with those kinds of necklaces, and so they wear those little things around their neck, and that, that's available. That input is there and ready for them and 
waiting is a safe alternative for kids who need to chew. When kids don't mouth all the time, but sometimes you'll see all of a sudden it's just like they can't help themselves. Sometimes it's that their little bodies are pretty regulated unless something happens, again, that might make them overstimulated or somehow it just gets their little systems dysregulated. And so when that happens, you'll see them kind of go for something. You know what? It might be you. We talked, We mentioned biting before, but they just, they just got to get their mouths on something. When I see that start to happen with a kid, when I have him playing and then all of a sudden it just kind of changes for him, that's when I talk to parents about, okay, he really might benefit from a crunchy or a chewy snack. And so we'll look for that, and we're ready for that during therapy, and moms and dads are ready for that during the day so that if they see, oh, you know, everything's going great, he's playing fine, he's watching a little show, or he's playing with toys, or you're playing with him, or he's playing with his siblings, and then all of a sudden he starts to just kind of lose it a little bit, and you start to see that excessive mouthing, that's when a parent should be saying, aha, let me go get whatever food that they found works for him uh, to really, really give him that input that he's craving. And again, different kids will like different things. Dried fruit is a good option. Sometimes it's just a snack. It might not even be particularly crunchy or chewy, but something like a banana so that it's soft enough so that if a kid is not fantastic with solids, <laughs> but he can still kind of, he still needs to chew to make that, that, um, food so that he can swallow it and he'll still need to chew and want to chew to get that feedback to his little mouth. Other things, fruit snacks, if a parent isn't too worried about it and they don't want to do that all day every day and they look at that little fruit snack as just a treat, that's a good, might be a good option. Even things like chips or pretzels uh, that kid once they're safely eating solids. String cheese is a good alternative and sometimes I've had parents, you know, put it in the cold part of the refrigerator. <laughs> So that it's even a little harder to chew, and so kids can really, really, really have to chew that. And, again, let me just say one more time with safety, you wouldn't want to do this with a kid who is at risk for choking. You want to make sure that his swallow is really, really safe. If you're worried about that, you know, of course, you'll need to keep that safety consideration first. But for a lot of these kinds of kids, we know that they can safely eat a variety of solid consistencies. Uh, cheese puffs, cheese balls. Cheese balls are one of my favorite all-time snacks for kids. You know, they're small they're crunchy. It's more like a chip than cheese. Uh, so that, those kinds of options might satisfy kids need to chew. And again, you can have a snack in the middle of your time with him if you're a therapist, and you can work on requesting. You can work on, gosh, just a ton of different things while you are meeting that sensory need. Sometimes kids, let's move on to the next little solution. Sometimes kids will place toys in their mouths and really try to mouth them because they don't know what to do with a toy. <laughs> And so it's just like, hey, I don't know what this is for. Let me just go to my default, which is put it in my mouth or put my mouth on it. So think about that. Think about a kid's play skills. Where is he? Does he know what to do with this toy? And so you might have to redirect some of your efforts to working on play skills so that mouthing is not as enticing as it was because he's having more fun playing with the toy now and he'll want to do that as opposed to mouthing the toy. If none of those things seem to work, you may just need to get up for a little bit and do a lot of big movement or big motor activities so that you get that whole little body regulated first, and then you'll go back to sit-down play where um, you're, he's using things with his hands, but he won't be as likely to put those small things in his mouth because you've gotten his little body in a better place. Now, sometimes... All of these strategies that we've tried, these are good ideas, and they're practical, and they're simple, and parents can remember them. Sometimes, though, all of that kind of doesn't work. <laughs> for, let's just be truthful here. And you will have to use more of a behavioral modification or behavioral component for continued mouthing. When you've met a kid's sensory needs, when you're giving him those regular opportunities with teething toys or snacks so that he can get all that and then he still seems to put everything in his mouth. And if you if he is older than 24 months, so he's got to reach his second birthday and he's moving along developmentally, meaning that he's talking now, He's popping out some words. He might even be doing some phrases, and you think, boy, he should be over this by now. We should have been beyond this developmental phase. That's the point where I start doing some 
correcting and again just with some verbal cues here with saying things like you know yuck yuck we don't eat ooh and try not to make it sound fun or the kid thinks you're having you know that it's a little joke and then he wants to eat things more that funny reaction from you some uh, more behavior oriented behavioral oriented therapists may say not to even do something as as particularly or possibly enticing as yucky because the kid might think that's so funny that he would want to do it again to get more of that reaction so you might have to be a little more stern and say you know no don't eat that or don't mouth that or whatever word that you've decided that you'll use. But I, I generally do stick with, ooh, yucky, no, no, no. And then we immediately move on to something else. And so you'll just have to see what works for a child. And, again, what kind of fits in your philosophical <laughs> approach so that I have a hard time kind of being uh, mean <laughs> or being overly um, – directive with that I always kind of like to use humor or something that's playful and then sort of move on and not pay as much attention to it but again I know, I know people have different philosophies and so you'll just have to figure out what seems to work certainly if a kid's going to mouth something that's potentially dangerous you would want to be something that he could choke on something that could in some way injure his little mouth of course you're going to want to be super super firm about that and then more importantly remove the material so that he doesn't have an opportunity to hurt himself and certainly for that kind of situation you would certainly be stern and raise your voice and you know I remember one time a family that I worked with well I've had this happen over and over kids have tried to eat things like cigarette butts or um, animal droppings or something like that and in that situation you know you just step in and certainly say no and then more importantly you're moving the kid so that's and that offensive unsafe whatever that was but but certainly kind of know how to measure out what your redirection would be so that situation is a lot different than a kid who just wants to put a ball in his mouth or something like that all right so those are our ideas to try when a kid is mouthing toys excessively we've got some possible explanations there and again Remember that you may have to try different things. Let's move on and talk about one that we talk about a lot on this show, but it's so prevalent that I decided when I was reading through and planning for the show, I thought, well, I don't know if I want to talk about this because we talk a lot about interaction and engagement on this show, but, you know, it's a new year. We, may, we have new parents who start listening all the time, and we as therapists, sometimes we forget that we know what we know. So let's just talk about this next problem anyway because it is really important and it is a major reason that some kids don't play with us. It's just that they avoid interaction with people. So what might this look like? What might a kid be doing that tells us or that looks like he's avoiding interaction with people? Well, that might be a kid who just kind of roams around or watches things, and it's just so hard to get his attention. It might be a kid who purposefully turns away when you try to approach him. Or when you try to talk to her, it might be a kid who seems kind of bored or disinterested. It may not be that they're being real nasty or <laughs> that they are being um, kind of little stinkers, as I've said before, but it just might be that they just don't seem real, real into what you're doing and you just can't ever quite seem to get a hook with their little attention. It might be a kid who seems to be thinking about something else when you talk to her. So you think, sometimes a parent will think, well, boy, she's just, these toys are just too babyish for her. She's moved on. She's, she's thinking about all these other things when really that's not what's going on. They're just, they have an engagement issue or a social interaction problem. It may be a kid who's super, super, super attached to his parents or siblings, but he doesn't have much interaction or engagement with other people. And that's really confusing for a parent because they'll say, well, he looks at me. He plays with me. It's just you. It's because you're new. And then you'll say, well, you know, talk to me about how he does with other people. And then mom might say, well, he's never really with other people. Or, gosh, he's just kind of shy. That's just sort of how it is. And a parent might take a, a temperament difference or or they'll, they'll think it's a personality difference or a temperament, uh, uh, just their temperament difference rather than, gosh, this is a social interaction problem or this, or that it's even a problem. Again, a parent might think, well, this is just what we've got. We don't need to do anything about that. That's totally unrelated to this communication delay that we're looking at. And you have to explain the relationship between social interaction and communication. That 
that one-on-one interaction or a child's ability to be able to interact and engage with other people is the foundation for talking and for communicating and for listening and for understanding. And so a kid who routinely avoids that or who seems to even shy away from that if a parent likes that word, you have to talk about this may not be uh, or this may be a deeper problem than that. It's not just his little personality. You know, this is a real developmental issue. So you have to talk to parents about that. And you'll have to talk about the differences. You know, we want him to be able to, as he grows up, interact with a variety of people. You know, sometimes kids with autism will get really so strongly attached to their moms. And that is fantastic because they view their moms as their lifeline. And they are. (laughs) And so a mom, again, might miss that he's not really doing it with anybody else because on one hand they're so flattered as well they should be. You know, nothing is like seeing that you are your child's whole world. You know, that's very, very rewarding to we mommies. And so you'll have to kind of talk a mom through that. And if you're a mom in this situation kind of talking about that, now on one hand you feel you're so excited that he seems to only interact with you, that's that's fantastic. And I do not want to ever diminish the connection that you have with your child, but he needs to be able to interact with other people. And so that's kind of our purpose with talking about this. This also might be a kid who, remember we're talking about kids who avoid interaction with other people. They just seem to ignore their names or ignore when other people try to talk to them. And again, a mom or dad are thinking, you know, she just does her own thing or she just isn't interested in what I have to say or, you know, she's just so strong-willed and you have to say, that's not really it. She really has a social interaction issue and she really has a language delay. She doesn't understand what you're saying. It's not that she's hearing you say, go get your shoes and then purposefully thinking, well, I'm not going to go get my shoes. It's that she doesn't understand the words, go get your shoes. She has very little idea of what you're saying to her. So you have to help parents see that. And it could be, again, a kid who is not really, really, doesn't really look like they are are um, choosing or purposefully not interacting with people. It's just a lot more subtle than that. They may sit with you and let you do whatever you want to do with them, but they're just not quite good. They might look past you when you're really playing with them and you just never really feel like you've got a solid connection or or a solid kind of interaction going. And you know what's so funny is when you have a kid like that and you work with them for a while and then you really do start to get their attention and they really do connect with you and you get that, you know, kind of ah, moment where their little faces light up and they're looking at you and you're into what they're doing and they're into what you're doing and you're sharing that moment, then that's when you say to a parent, look, this is it. This is what we're going for. Did you see that? And so they can really start to differentiate when their kid is with them and on versus when he's not really connected and not really interacting. So that's what that problem, that these, we'll talk about, we're talking about all of those kinds of issues, that avoiding engagement or avoiding interaction. So again, let's do some possible explanations here. Remember, he could just be underreacting to speech. So he hears somebody talk, but it's just to him. It's not enough input to really register in his little mind that someone is trying to get his attention. He's Remember, he's not choosing to ignore you or tune you out. He's just not processing language. He's just not, he's not understanding that you're trying to get his attention and that you need to speak with him. And those kids, we'll talk about strategies in a minute, but if they don't consistently respond to language or what they hear, you have to give them other ways to know that you want to interact with them so you'll have to touch them you know or you'll have to get right in their line of vision so that they can see you if that auditory piece if they're underreactive to language it could be that kids are overreactive meaning that they they hear you they don't necessarily understand what you're saying to them they know you're talking to them though and it's uncomfortable they are they they process that incoming information again like an assault to them. They it's too noisy. Uh, other kids like this, there might be kids who have reactions like that with uh, visual information, so that they are you see them watching a show or whatever, and it's just too much. They start putting their little heads down. It's, it's a, or they walk into a room that's so bright, 
Or think about walking outside with just the blazing sunshine and you think, oh, I need sunglasses. That's what a kid might feel like when he has those kind of overreactions to incoming environmental sensations. So those kinds of kids really need you to minimize the distractions or minimize what's going on. You might not be as loud with those kids. I've joked on the show before, and when I speak live and talk to groups, I'll, you know, I'll say, you know, how many of you routinely scare kids? <laughs> you're just, you're so alive with your energy that you're talking loud and you're laughing loud and you're, you just, you know, we're woohoo, and a kid might not be able to take that. <laughs> He's got a different kind of a little sensory makeup than you expect him to have. And generally, being playful with kids and being fun and boisterous and big is a good idea, but for kids who have those really sensitive systems, it might be too much. So, you know, I have to pull it back when I'm in those situations, when I realize that a kid is becoming overstimulated because of me, you know, that I've been too much for him. We over-talk in sessions a lot as therapists, and so sometimes a kid will shut down because you've just been too overstimulating for his little auditory system. So you've talked too fast, you've talked too much, you've talked too loud. And so you have to really pull that back and simplify what you're saying. Again, another explanation here is just classic language delay kid. These kinds of kids who are avoiding interaction with people, it's because they have no idea what you're saying. And so you're talking and talking and talking and they just have not linked meaning. And even though some of those children may have strong cognitive strengths in other areas. I mean, they may be able to take their little iPads and, you know, recognize an icon and go to the right game and, you know, watch it load and then play and, you know, use an app independently. You know, they've got big time visual strengths, you know, that or they may have some motor strengths. You know, I've had children that are like little Houdinis. Their parents can have, you know, nine locks all the way up the front door and their kid, pull, you know, scoots a chair over and manages to, uh, undo all of those locks and still get out of the house. And so even though these kids might be so super zany brainy smart in other ways and have these really unexpected kinds of skills, they may still have a really, really hard time understanding what words mean. And they're not talking yet, and you've identified that. A parent sees that. They know that their kid is not talking. But a parent really doesn't understand that their child doesn't understand very many words. So you have to talk to parents about that. And remember, almost any time, I mean, with a huge percentage of accuracy, when a kid has a social issue, an interaction issue with people, as a toddler, there's almost always a receptive language delay too. Now, you'll sometimes hear these stories about kids who haven't spoken until they're older. You know, there might be a movie about it or a book about it until they're much, much older, and then somehow they figure out that their, comp their comprehension skills are normal. But you can't always assume that. And so you have to really see evidence that a child understands language. So is he following directions? Is he participating in simple daily routines from a cognitive perspective? Will he do some things, especially when he's trying to get his needs met? Will he do what you ask him to do? Will he, does he, is there some kind of evidence that he understands what you say to him? And it's not always about things like, you know, will he point to pictures and books on request or will he point to some body parts? Look a little bit deeper than that. You know, when you want something to eat, when you know that he's hungry, can you say, let's go get crackers and he runs in the kitchen? I mean, that would be a really good way or when he's crying for something or you'll just be able to know. And, and sometimes it's not, again, those things like pointing to pictures or, not, you know, identifying body parts or all of those things that we look at on a standardized test. But look at how he functions in his daily life. If his mom's, if he acts like he's ready to go outside and play and his mom says, where are your shoes? And he goes to find them. That's a better indication of what he understands <laughs> than anything that he can do for me on a, on the PLS. Okay. That's a preschool language skill for those of you who are parents and don't know what I mean, but most therapists know that test, but you know, or, or whatever test, the whatever your test you're administering, how does he follow directions in his daily life? And so kids who avoid interaction with people usually have a hard time learning to understand what words mean 
because they don't have that engagement piece. They're not naturally drawn to paying attention to other people. So let's go through some strategies here and talk about what might work. Other than speech therapy, <laughs> and these are things we do in speech therapy, but again, if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you're saying, gosh, that sounds like my kid, if he is not in therapy, I beg you to turn this show off right now. Google early, if he's under three, Google the phrase or the words early intervention in and then put your state's name in there and get connected to a state birth to three program so that you can have him evaluated and then treated so many parents needlessly try to treat a child's language issues and severe um, severe developmental challenges on their own. And a lot of times, let me say, the severe kids may get more, may not get overlooked as much because pediatricians are on that. But kids who have more mild to moderate delays, a parent tries to just kind of do it on their own because they don't know where to go or what to do. So if you're a parent in this kind of situation and parents like this reach out to me all the time because they've Googled my child doesn't talk and they discover my website, teach me to talk. And so they'll say, what should I do? Intervention is the key. And hey, as a mom or dad, you don't have to know how to do it all. Get a therapist to help you and to really look at your child. And sometimes parents say, you know, I don't want him labeled. I don't want somebody to tell me that there's something wrong with him. It's really not like that when you get past the evaluation. Therapy is fun, or at least it should be. And many, many times you'll develop close relationships with your child's therapist who are going to come in and they're going to teach you all kinds of things to do with your child that will make a world of difference in how he or she begins to understand and process language. And so certainly, again, that social piece, this is where we want to start with kids who are having difficulty engaging and interacting with other people. So our first recommendation for these kids is just, you know, it's easier to change us than it is a child. So you're just going to be more fun. You're going to do everything you can to make your interactions more playful and give him a reason to want to include you in your play. And this is where I start with almost every kid and almost every parent, that first session and even during the evaluation when we're talking about the things that were beyond, you know, everything that's wrong, we start to think about, okay, well, let's let's see what we can do. Let's talk about what's right. <laughs> let's see what we can do to get off on the right foot. Let's see what we can change today that might make a difference in this child. And a lot of times it really is changing the parent or changing the adult with making ourselves more fun, making ourselves um, more, uh, well, playful. We're, we'll get into what we're doing a little bit more. We're totally engaged with playing ball and throwing the ball or blowing up a balloon and tossing the balloon around. It's not all about, you know, sit down and nose to the grindstone and you don't talk, so we're going to teach you to talk by belting you in the high chair and really making you listen. No, you know, we don't start like that. And so as a therapist, you need to talk to parents about that. And again, recognize some of the the explanations that we talked about earlier. If the kid is underreactive, a parent needs to amp it up a little bit. But if they're overreactive, to um, incoming input, we might have to pull that back. And as a therapist, again, that's what we need to talk to parents about and say, you know, oh, he looks overstimulated or he looks understimulated. Here's how we can change what we're doing. Uh, let's move on to the next strategy. What else can we try when a kid seems to be avoiding interaction with you? Sing. <laughs> and that's a real kind of common sense strategy. And that's what a lot of these things are. You know, we're calling them strategies or techniques or recommendations, but sometimes it is just kind of common sense. And I, I've used this example a lot, but sometimes when all else fails during a session, you don't have a kid's attention, he's not really into what you're doing, he's about to cry, you can feel this, you know, it's going south really quickly, you know, you're about to lose him, you just break out in song because you don't know what else to do. And so a lot of times kids who seem to shut down or not listen when you're talking to them, you start to thing and boy they are right there with you they are paying attention to you they are engaged with you so singing can be really really powerful to get a kid's attention when he seems to be avoiding interaction with you sometimes it may not be singing it may just be saying something silly using exclamatory words or play words so we might just you know, say something like, you know, woohoo, let's play. Sometimes those little interjections 
with a kid can do a lot to bring him to you and help him want to attend. Some kids will respond better to another noise and language to alert their little systems. So you might try, um, they might hear you clap or hear you whistle or maybe there's an animal sound that he or she really likes. And so you sort of switch gears and to get their attention, you start with something, again, kind of a novel vocalization that they can hear you do and that makes them want to pay attention to you and kind of come back and and check out what it is you're doing a lot of times kids need a physical cue and we, we i mentioned this before but touching them sometimes kids will do better if you kind of scoop them up and hold them as you're playing together or playing with a toy body on body contact it can be so calming so if a kid has been really really active and you just it's kind of squirrely you just can't get him to calm down a lot of times you'll do some big body activities like swinging in a blanket or jumping on and off the couch or jumping on a bed or just running through the house a game of chase and then at the end of that after you've done that for a few minutes you know two or three minutes you can just kind of scoop him up and hold him and then just plop down and immediately start playing with a toy and that works really really well now some kids are pretty aversive to light touch it feels almost like a tickle to them some kids hate tickling so you'll have to really really use more of a firm touch or a firmer kind of hold on them and again don't think firm like bear hug as in I'm going to completely eliminate your ability to move think of it as oh I'm nurturing you and I'm I'm helping you and I'm providing the support and comfort that you need to be able to stay here with me and do this activity together. So just figure out what works movement-wise with the kid. Roughhousing with some kids works great, but you can't let them get over the edge there. You have to do it just enough, and then you'll be able to get them to settle down and play with you. Uh, but, but for some kids, that snuggling, they like that one-on-one kind of closeness and that helps them really really attend so do that we've talked about kids too who really really need visual cues so they're walking across the room kind of doing their own thing just kind of roaming around and you may call their name 10 times and they don't respond for those kids they're visual kids these are the kids again that like their shows and their dvds and their they might watch videos on youtube all day mom just kind of keeps it rolling those visual kids, you may have to do everything you can to get in their line of vision. And again, you've got to give them something to look at. <laughs> you've got to be fun. You can't just be a bump on a log for uh, or plain or boring. They need more of an umph visually to look at. So try to get yourself in their little faces. Last year when we did that series, uh, 11 skills that a child must master before words emerge, so much about environmental modifications, meaning that we're going to put the kid maybe up on the couch to play and have the toy right there kind of between their little legs, and we'll sit on the floor so that our face is right there with the toy. Or, you know, you might kind of stand on your knees there, up on your knees, so that you are doing everything you can to place yourself in that kid's line of vision. Back to the example where the kid's walking around the room and you just keep calling them. You may have to go get them and get right in front of them and then just plop them down right where they are and start playing right there. You might have to play face-to-face. You know, in the last example that we talked about with a child who needs that physical body-on-body contact to kind of calm down or alert, you know, pep up a little bit, some kids can't have, won't play and participate as well unless they see your face. And so you'll have to figure that out from child to child, what seems to work best. Um, Let's move on to the next one. If they are overstimulated, that we've talked about, too much noise, too too many distractions, you know, there are other kids playing and they can't play with what's going on there because they're too worried about what their brother and sister are doing or the TV's on and they're constantly looking at the TV. Really minimize those other environmental distractions. And a lot of times that's hard for therapists to do home visits. You, you really don't want to say to my mom, hey, I think you need to turn that talk show off. But sometimes you might have to say that kind of thing. So just think about that. And the last strategy here for a kid who avoids interaction is begin with what the kid already likes. <laughs> so if he's refusing to do what you want him to do, or if you just can't seem to get his attention, stop 
and start over with something that you know he already likes to do. And that's what we mean by follow a child's lead. So if you know that a kid hates puzzles, don't start working with the puzzle. And mom says, well, he doesn't like puzzles, but he does like to play ball. Play ball. (laughs) Use that kind of game first. Um, Other things that you can do, don't always try to start with something new. Again, start with something that's worked in your last session. So when you seem to have trouble with the kid interacting with you or avoiding you, or if you're a parent and you think, man, I've got this new toy, but he just doesn't want to play with it at all, lead in with something else that he does like and try to think of a way that you can connect those activities. And what I like to say to parents is, you know, we've got to get him first. We've got to, we've got to get his attention first before we can move on to that new thing because new will, for a lot of kids will just virtually ensure that they're not going to pay attention to you. Now, not all kids, typically developing kids, and the more typically developing a kid is, they like new, they like novelty. But for a lot of these kinds of kids who have these pretty significant social interaction problems, we need to start with the familiar. So you'll begin with things, again, that they already like to do. And and remember, all of these ideas that we've talked about are in my book, Teach Me to Play With You. And so get your, if you're thinking, what did she say about that? Get yourself a copy of that book so you can have this written reference here. All right, next week, we'll pick back up with this next little series of issues. And hopefully, you'll get some new solutions and some new ideas to try for kids who have difficulty playing. That's all for this week. Have a super, super week, and we'll be back next Friday. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.